0: Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning and welcome, those of you joining us from Calvary Quaker Town. It's great to have you with us this morning. We're in a series from Daniel that we're calling How to Stand Out When You Don't Fit In. And the goal is not to stand out in a weird way, the goal is to stand out in a positive way that encourages people and motivates them to live in goodness rather than in ways that are opposed to what God's doing. Well, we're in the book of Daniel, and so far we've looked at the first six chapters. And the first six chapters are continual reminders to the Jews that are in exile. They're POWs, moved from Jerusalem all the way over to Babylon. And in a sense, God keeps saying to them in those six chapters, I remember you, I haven't forgotten. I am with you. I will one day make all things right. In spite of appearances, I am in control. Over and over and over again. I really needed those reminders this week because we turned the page from Daniel 6 to Daniel 7 today. And just like the first six chapters find Daniel and his friends in dangerous situations, Daniel 7 through 14 finds preachers and teachers in a very dangerous situation because those chapters are very controversial, lots of fighting and arguing about what they mean. So we're kind of, with fear and trepidation, I'm stepping into Daniel 7 and we're gonna kind of look at the big picture. Now I'm using big picture there as our title in two different ways. In Daniel 7, one through 18, Daniel sees a vision and the vision is of the big picture. In a sense, God shows Daniel in that vision in the first 18 verses, the vision of human history from the empire of Babylon all the way through the fullness of God's kingdom coming. We're not there yet. So we're somewhere on that continuum. Babylon all the way through the fullness of God's kingdom. But I also wanted to say the big picture because we're not gonna fight over the details. We're not gonna wallow in the minutia. We're gonna look at the big picture and we're gonna try to correlate the main things with what's going on. And out of that, we'll find the theme presented in Daniel 7 as clearly as anywhere else in the book. In spite of appearances, God is in control. Well, before we actually get to the verses, we need to do a little preparation. You ever notice that most work requires some preparation? Suppose you're gonna paint a room or paint a wall. You don't just whip out the paint and start painting. You first have to take the spackle, Uh, you know, I don't, but somebody has to take the spackle and spackle the holes. Then you sand the spackle. Then after that, you prime the wall. And eventually one day you get around to actually painting the wall the color you want it to be. Lots of preparation. If you're going to go for a run or you're going to work out, you don't just start running or working out. You have to stretch and prepare for what you're going to do. We kind of lost our lawn over the summer. Not quite sure where it went, but our uh, mowers were mowing dirt for the last few weeks of the summer. And so we had to seed the lawn. Now, if it was up to me, go out and throw some seed around. Oh, no, no, no. You have to prepare the lawn for the seed. And so you punch holes in the lawn, then you have to rip up all the thatch or whatever it's called and get rid of that. Then after all of that, eventually, after it's fertilized and prepared, then you put the seed down. It comes at the end of a really long process. I went to a meat fest yesterday, meat and dessert. That was my kind of barbecue, right? Meat and dessert. But one of the things I was reminded of, lots of preparation goes into a meat fest. You have to you know, season the meat and marinate the meat and you've got to smoke the meat and prepare it before you eat it. Lots of preparation before the main event. So we need a little preparation before we come to Daniel chapter seven. Well, here's one bit of preparation. Many commentators will tell you that Daniel seven is actually pivotal to the book. Even though it's a little confusing, even though there's lots of arguments and conflict, it's pivotal to the book. Everything in Daniel one through six flows to Daniel seven and everything in the second half of seven through 14 flows from Daniel seven. The first six incidents, those six accounts of Daniel and his friends, it's God whispering to them, in spite of appearances, I'm in control. Daniel seven, God shouting to them, in spite of appearances, I'm in control. And all of the vision, there are four visions, the second half of the book, The second three visions are all just pieces of the big vision in Daniel 7, 1 through 18. So if you kind of get the big vision, you understand how the little pieces fit. Daniel 7 is pivotal and important to the whole book. But then I have to teach a vocabulary word as a part of preparation. You don't really need to know a word. I just like saying it. The word is apocalyptic literature. You say that with me. Apocalypse. It's fun, right? Apocalypse. Now here's what apocalyptic, um, apocalyptic literature means. Apocalyptic literature is literature in pictures. Rather than reading, it's almost like you're reading a movie. There's scenes that are going on all the time. Lots of images, lots of symbols in apocalyptic literature. This stands for that, that stands for that. We're not gonna fight about all the details. We're gonna look for some of the main correlations. If we can make the main correlations, that's what's most important, and we'll leave the fighting over the minutia to some other people. Apocalyptic literature, literature in pictures, because often a picture is worth a thousand words. If you're a reader of the Bible and you've ever read the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, you've already read apocalyptic literature. It's that weird kind of literature, right? We got animals and beasts and things don't make sense. Lots of mixed metaphors. Remember when you were in high school and you were writing little essays and stuff? Don't mix your metaphors. Well, your teacher never read apocalyptic literature because the metaphors are always mixed. The lion is the lamb. The multitude is the 144,000, right? There are lots of double metaphors, mixed metaphors for what's going on. So that's apocalyptic literature. That's what's going on. But you also have to understand that um, Daniel 7, the vision, Daniel is no longer the commentator. Daniel is the recipient of the vision. Up until this point, other people have had dreams and visions, and Daniel told them what it meant. In the second half of the book, Daniel receives the visions and the dreams, and God has to explain to him what they mean. Well, when did the dream happen? That's an important part of preparation. In verse 1 of chapter 7, we read, that it was in the first year of King Belshazzar. Now you've met King Belshazzar, not in person, but you read about King Belshazzar a couple of weeks ago from Daniel chapter five. In Daniel chapter five, we met Belshazzar the last day of his reign and the last day of his life. Remember he saw the writing on the wall and God said, up, time's up, you're done. Well, that was was his last day. This vision, not chronological, this vision happened Before the last day, because obviously that was his last day, this happened before that. So even though it's chapter seven, it kind of happened before five. So five five is before seven, but seven actually, see apocalyptic literature is hard, right? See how it works? So that's kind of enough preparation. Now by way of explanation, grab your Bibles, fasten your seatbelt, grab your iPhone, your tablet, whatever you want, and follow along as I read the first 18 verses of this really weird, dangerous section of Daniel chapter seven. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others came out of the sea. The first was like a lion and it had wings like an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being, and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had 10 horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as, what was, was as white as snow. The hair on his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beast had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power all nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Told you it was weird, right? Better than sci-fi movies. That's what we got. Well, what's going on? You got to remember, apocalyptic literature, these strange prophecies in the Bibles, in the Bible, that it's not given to satisfy our curiosity. It's not given for people in the 21st century to make maps about how things are going to happen in the future. These visions are given to people in the prophet's day and in our day to say, hey, in spite of appearances, God is in control and we may not be able to line up all the details, keep the main things, the main things, and God will sort out the details as we go. Well, by way of explanation, let's kind of work our way through and I'll give you some uh, guidance along the way. First of all, do you notice that the four beasts come out of the sea? The sea that's churning and chaotic. Okay, you got to remember, in the Bible, a churning chaotic sea always stands for the universe, humanity in rebellion against God. The Jews were never seafaring people. They weren't the Phoenicians that go out to sail around. So the sea was dark the sea is dangerous, the sea is in opposition to God. So these beasts come out of humanity in opposition to God. Did you also notice about the four beasts? They're kind of like mutant beasts, right? Um, not, not like the turtles, but I mean, these are real mutant guys, right? The first is a lion, but it's a lion with eagle's wings. It's kind of like mix and match, right? The second is a bear, but it's a lopsided bear, kind of up on one side. Then we get a leopard, but a leopard has wings. Again, kind of a mutant deal. And then we get some strange Frankenstein thing at the end with iron teeth and you know, kind of a transformer kind of beast that comes out. This thing's not even, you know, alive like the other beast. This is something mechanical and ter- terrifying. So what's going on? Well, it seems like, and the, the explanation's given to Daniel, Daniel the beast that rise out of the chaos of humanity in opposition to God represent four kingdoms, four empires that rise out of the sinful humanity that's self-destructing and self-destructive. And those kingdoms, here it is again, kings come and kings go. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Empires come and empires go. Corporations come and corporations go. Countries come and countries go. Churches come and churches go. God is forever. And in the end, just as he opened the curtain of history, he will close it. Now, there are some hints along the way as to what these empire, empires mean. So the first kingdom, if, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar are often pictured as a lion. So Nebuchadnezzar is the lion, and just like the lion is the king of the beast, so the eagle is the king of the sky, there's Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. The kingdom of Babylon is the first beast. And if you wanna tease out some of the details, remember with Nebuchadnezzar, he's full of himself, he's pompous and proud. What does God do? He transforms his mind into a mind of an animal and sends him lives like an animal for a while, but then God restores him. That's that little scenario, what's happening with the first beast. But that king and that kingdom comes and that kingdom goes and another kingdom comes. A lopsided bear kingdom comes. A lopsided bear, stronger on one side than the other side, kind of like a major league pitcher, right? One strong arm, one weak arm. He's a lopsided bear. The kingdom of Medo-Persia, the Medes and the Persians, combined to defeat Babylon, but they were not two equal kingdoms. Persia is much stronger than Media, and so it's a lopsided bear. The one kingdom is what? like a one hulking arm, that's the Persian arm, and the other arm's kind of weak. They trail that arm along. The next kingdom that comes is another hybrid kingdom, another mutant kingdom, and that's the leopard kingdom with wings. Leopard's one of the fastest animals in the world. If you give the leopard wings, it's even faster. That kingdom represents the Greek kingdom, and Alexander the Great conquers the world with great speed. In fact, Alexander, think about this, conquered almost all there was from Africa to India, and he died when he was 32 years old. Quick, he then leaves his kingdom, not to his sons. He didn't have sons. He left the kingdom to his four generals. So we got four heads on the thing. But the kingdom of Greek Greece doesn't go on forever. The kingdom of Greece is taken over by Rome. Rome is the ferocious monster it kind of destroys everything in its path and terrorizes everything. A kingdom that's brutalized beyond all brutalization. That's the Roman kingdom. But that's not the end of the story, is it? All of a sudden, the characters of the beast fade to the background and we move to a courtroom, a scene. And we move to the judge seated on the throne. He's called the Ancient of Days. That's kind of a really poetic way of saying He's lived a really, really long time, like forever. He has seen it all. It may come and it may go, he's never surprised. He has been here forever and will be here forever. He is the Ancient of Days, the eternal one. He's also white. Remember those pictures from Revelation, right? When John sees the picture in Revelation one, he sees Jesus as white, white hair, purity, holiness. This king is the one seated on the throne, Ancient of Days is white purity, holiness. It's a courtroom. What I really like about this scene, no jury. Isn't that good? No lawyers arguing little details of the law. This judge doesn't need any of it. This judge knows everything because he knows all that can be known. There is no jury. There is no executive branch and legislative branch and judicial branch. He is the branch, and he sits on the throne. But then we meet another really weird person. He's introduced to someone like a son of man. Now, do you notice son of man, not capitalized here. If you're familiar with the Bible, when I say son of man, you immediately think of Jesus. But the words son of man just means human being. If you're a son of man, you're a human being. But this person is like a son of man. He's not really a son of man. He's kind of like the son of man, but he comes riding on the clouds. That's always a picture in the Bible, a symbol for God. God in the vision, right in the cloud, that brings shade to them when it's hot out. The cloud of fire, the Shekinah glory, Jesus ascends into the clouds, will come again with the clouds. It's a picture of God. And so this last character that we're introduced to is human and God, huh? Does that sound familiar? You know, Son of Man was Jesus' favorite title for himself. Isn't that interesting? You know, the writers of the gospels, they like to say, oh, Jesus is the Son of God, and he truly is. Jesus is the Messiah and he is. But Jesus preferred the title in which he identifies with us. My mission is to become one of them. My mission is to take what they owe and pay it for them. My mission is to take their debt upon my shoulders and make them right with my father. I am the son of man. The one who rides on the clouds becomes like a human being to pay what we owe. Now in this court scene, the beasts come. They're all judged by the Ancient of Days. And the one like the son of man riding on the clouds is given all authority, all nations forever and ever. His kingdom has no end. Did you see that part? And so just like the the point was, kingdoms come and kingdoms go, corporations come and corporations go, countries come and countries go, kings come, kings go, CEOs come and CEOs go. Not this guy. This one, like the son of man riding on the clouds, he rules forever and ever and ever. That's the point of division. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you probably uh, were remembering different things as I was walking you through the chapter. Here had a whole bunch of stuff you don't have to understand, and that, that's okay. But did you make any connections? We're gonna end by making three connections. And I'm, going to, I'm only gonna put numbers up here, so you're gonna have to figure this out. Um, since the Eagles don't play till late tonight, you've all afternoon to kind of read these different sections that connect. So here we go. The first connection you need to know is seven and two, seven and two. Because Daniel chapter seven is almost a repeat of Daniel chapter two. Now, Carlos spoke on Daniel two a few weeks ago. And remember in Daniel chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar had to dream and nobody knew what it meant, but Daniel shows up and tells Nebuchadnezzar what it means and that we actually have a picture of what Nebuchadnezzar saw. it was a picture of a statue. That's the real stat. No, it's an artist rendering of the statue. Now remember from Daniel 2, the metals become less precious and much more vulnerable as you go down the statue. So this statue had a golden head. That was the Babylonian kingdom. Silver arms and chest, that's the Medo-Persian kingdom. Bronze belly and thighs, that's the Greek kingdom. Iron legs, clay feet, the Roman king. Same, thr- same four nations again, right? Same four empires. But in Daniel 2, a little rock, not cut out with human hands, a little rock, it's a god rock, strikes the clay feet, and the whole sucker falls down and smashes. That's Daniel 2. Daniel 7, we don't have a statue. Daniel 7, we get those freaky beasts, right? We get these guys coming out of the chaotic sea. And the beasts are a lion with eagle's wings a bear that's lopsided, a leopard that's really, really fast, and a crazy wild monster that's brutal. And this time there are no stones that get thrown at the beast. Now the one like the son of man comes riding on the clouds and all the beasts are done away with forever. Same basic history looked at from two different perspectives. Now, here's kind of what I think. When you read Daniel chapter two, Did you notice they're all precious metals for the most part, particularly the head and the the arms? Like, I don't know about you, if I went home today and found a giant golden head in my yard, I'd be really excited. I'd be going to a jeweler tomorrow morning, first thing, or I'd be cashing in or selling it online or something because gold's valuable. Even if you gave me a whole bunch of silver, I'd be pretty happy with that. I could sell that and make some money. Bronze a little, ah, clay, you can have that for yourself. But as you go down the statue, it's precious, it's majestic, it's beautiful. And that's kind of what Nebuchadnezzar sees. He sees a statue and you know, it's kind of cool looking, right? Yeah, that's right. Gold, silver, bronze, really cool stuff. I think that Daniel too is looking at those four periods of human history from man's perspective. And human beings look at a history and say, look what we've done, wow. Man, a head of gold, that's really cool, right? Silver arms and chest, wow. Human beings can do really neat stuff. But Daniel 7 looks at the same periods from God's perspective. What does God see? Chaos, rebellion, self-centeredness, and destruction. We often look at the things that human beings make and companies make and countries make and empires do, and we're kind of impressed by all that, just like the statue. God looks at it and says, destruction, selfishness, nothing comes of this any good at all. Different Perspectives. Interesting. How do you often look at it? What captures your attention? Things that we make, things that you can accumulate that other people have done, or the things that only God can do? What captures your attention and your allegiance? Do you look at history and things in the world according to chapter two, man's perspective, or according to chapter seven, God's perspective? Notice in both chapters, God closes history. But boy, the allure is surely different from two to seven, isn't it? We need to start looking at the way life goes from God's perspective more than our own. So that's two and seven. See how that works? Same history, two different perspectives. And what's the point? In spite of appearances, lots of cool things in the statue, lots of scary beast. Yeah, in spite of appearances, God is in control. He closes history exactly according to schedule. Here's another connection. Seven and five. Seven and five, not Daniel five. Um, Well, what's five? Daniel seven and Revelation five. Daniel seven and Revelation five. Now we work through Daniel, excuse me, Revelation one a few weeks ago, and I hope you captured a lot of that imagery. A lot of imagery in the apocalypse of John from Revelation, that imagery and symbolism comes right out of Daniel. Well, in Revelation five, here's what happens. In Revelation five, Uh, chapter four, we enter heaven and the similarities are uncanny. In in Daniel chapter seven, Daniel's called up to the courtroom. In Revelation four, John is called into the courtroom. Neither of them know what's going on. They say, what is all this? Someone has to come and explain it to them. In Daniel seven, the one sitting on the throne, the Ancient of Days, gives authority to the one riding on the clouds who is like a son of man. In Revelation five, the drama takes place, but this time it's not running one on the clouds. Now it's the lion who is the lamb of God that gets the authority. So I'm not gonna read it all, but let me read you this part to show you. So Revelation five, beginning in verse six. Then I saw a lamb, the lion, a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, a lamb that had already been sacrificed. This is a dead lamb, but it's alive. I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slayed, standing at the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns. Horns are power, seven perfection, perfect power. Seven eyes, eyes are knowledge, perfect knowledge, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who sat on the throne. Now, if you remember anything about Revelation, the scroll that no one can open until the lamb shows up is the unrolling of God's victory. In fact, beginning in Revelation 5 through the end of the book, it's nothing more than the unrolling of the scroll. But nobody has authority to unroll the scroll, God's victory and the vindication of his people. Oh, but the lamb does. The lamb goes up and takes the scroll because the lamb has authority to do it. Verse eight, and when he had taken it, the 24 elders fell down before the lamb Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song. Now listen to the song. All the angelic beings in heaven sing. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God. Persons from every tribe and language and people and nation, you made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. So it seems to me that what John sees in more detail is what Daniel sees in chapter seven. Daniel sees the one like the son of man riding on the clouds receiving authority. John sees the lion lamb receiving authority, but he knows what it costs to get him. It was his sacrifice on behalf of others that earns him that authority. I think Revelation 5 is the heavenly perspective of the ascension. You know, we make a a really big deal out of the crucifixion, and that's good, right? Jesus paying the debt for our sin. And we make a really big deal, especially at Easter about the resurrection that God says, yes, you're vindicated, and that payment is accepted in full. But what happens at the ascension? At the ascension, Jesus rises, walks into the courtroom. Jesus receives all authority, and he begins to unroll the victory of God. Revelation 5 is the ascension where Jesus rises into the clouds, Acts chapter 1, and here's the other side of it, Jesus getting all authority in Revelation 5. Well, one more connection I want you to make. 7 and 28 It's not Revelation 28 because there is none. 7 and Matthew 28, 7 and Matthew 28. And here's why. So far, you're probably sitting there thinking, I just, some of this is pretty cool. We're not sure we believe you, Charles, but, but some of it's cool, right? And so we really believe that kings come and kings go, and kingdoms come and kingdoms go, and corporations come and corporations go, and companies come and kingdoms go, and right? Companies, all that stuff, countries come and countries go, we got it. But God controls it all, and God ends it all. He closes the curtain of his, we got it. And so there's great hope, side with God, think about God, we got it. But what do you do in the meantime? Which we spend our time doing? We just sit and think, oh, it's coming, it's coming. Like, just sit and wait patiently? No, no, no. Jesus tells us what to do while we're waiting. And I know in Matthew 28, Jesus was thinking of Daniel chapter 7 because he says exactly those words. Here's what we sometimes call the Great Commission. Then Jesus came to his disciples and says, now look at the language, exactly Daniel 7. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Daniel 7. Huh. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the end of the age. It's not sit and wait passively, patiently. We're to be doing something. What are we to be doing? Making disciples. Howard Hendricks was uh, fond of saying, if we fail to make disciples, we fail. That's the assignment. Now, notice in making disciples, there's the whole evangelistic thing, kind of the baptism piece. Love people and serve people, share your story with people, and the baptizing piece. Right? We have a baptism coming up. Register before tomorrow. That's part of the picture here, but also teaching them to obey. That's the whole formation piece. Baptism, right? That beginning step and all the other steps of spiritual formation. That that's what we're to be doing, making sure we're in process and making sure we're leading people in the process as we follow people in the process. Seven twenty-eight. They go together. So, what does all that mean? Well, I sure hope it means for you this morning that uh, you live in hope. In spite of appearances, God's in control. Those beasts are really scary looking, and I'm not sure what fear reigns or has sway in your life today, but I do know this. In the present of the Ancient of Days, the beasts cower in his presence and are gone in an instant. The story isn't over yet. It's still unrolling. Look at things from God's perspective, continue what Jesus started, make disciples. That's the assignment. So I'm not sure what that means for you. Does that mean you you need to get on track and you need to make sure, hey, if baptism is the next step for you, you need to do that just like it says in Matthew 28, right? Seven and 28 go together. If that's the next step for you, take the step. If it's learning to obey and live in step with the kingdom rather than the, rather than the majestic alluring kingdom from a human perspective, living it according to God's perspective. Live it like that. Continue what Jesus started. Where are you making your investments of time and energy? I wrestled with that question a lot this week. And the truth be told, every week, every day, I spend a whole lot more time and energy building things that I'll leave here or they'll leave me rather than spending time and energy building what lasts forever and ever. What do you say we wise up, huh? God says... I'm telling you what's going to happen. Not so you can draw maps and impress your friends. I tell you this so you'll live right today. And how do we live? You love, you serve, you share your story, you live in sync with what God wants, and you help other people do the same thing. Father, we give you thanks for these uh, strange parts of scripture. And this morning, we're particularly uh, thankful for Daniel chapter 7. With all the weirdness that's there, with the crazy beast and the Ancient of days with that white hair and one like a son of man who comes riding in on clouds. And yet, Lord, people that were oppressed needed to hear things in ways that they would understand, but other people wouldn't. So, Lord, if people are here and need hope this morning, would you use these passages and give us hope? But not just hope so we sit passively by with confidence, but hope that we get out of our chairs and get involved working, doing the things you want us to do. And those things are making disciples, loving and serving people, sharing our story, living in sync with you, and helping other people do the same thing. Lord, thanks for letting us know this in advance so we can get those things right today as we move toward the close of history when the rock fills the earth and one like a son of man riding on the clouds is seated on the throne forever and ever. We pray in his name. Amen.